Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is director Roxanne Benjamin, whose latest movie is the Blumhouse horror film There's Something Wrong with the Children. It tells the story of Margaret and Ben, a 30-something couple on vacation with their friends Ellie and Thomas, and Ellie and Thomas's two young children. When Margaret and Ben are left in charge of the kids so that Ellie and Thomas can energize their stagnant relationship, things go very wrong. I won't go into much more detail because one of the pleasures of the movie is its sense of horrific discovery, but I will say that There's Something Wrong with the Children is a great movie about all the anxieties associated with having kids, or with not having them at the age when you're expected to. It's currently available on all major VOD platforms and will be streaming on the newly branded MGM Plus, formerly Epics, on March 17. So one of the things I love about this movie is the way you use horror as a kind of vehicle for this dark comedy about relationships, both romantic relationships and friendships, and how they're affected by the introduction of children. And I guess I'm curious, what were some of the important ideas to you as far as what you wanted to be kind of the thematic or behavioral driving forces behind the movie? I think a lot of it comes from my own experience of I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are either married or like forever kittens at this point where they're just like in Peter Pan land and uh, a lot of them are also having kids of their own and there's become this kind of almost it feels like cult like join us energy that comes from both sides so I really kind of wanted to explore that and I hadn't really seen it as much in a horror movie usually it's you know, I'm a woman. I get sent a lot of scripts that are about motherhood. Um, I don't know a lot about motherhood. I know a lot of mothers, you know, so I guess tangentially I can think about their experience. But uh, when I got this script, the Margaret character and the Ben character were a little bit different than they are in the movie. Um Margaret very much wanted to have kids. And the whole weekend was kind of trying to convince Ben, her husband, into having kids. So it was this kind of like sneak attack that her and Ellie had uh, to convince him to kind of let them have children in, in some way. And he was the one on the fence. And, and I just feel like I've seen that. Um, and I really wanted to see the other side of that where, you know, maybe it's just the couple who had already had that conversation and figured it was just like settled on a little shelf. They had that once a couple years ago and they never think about it again. Um, but that's not really how relationships or life works. People's minds change. And uh, I, I really just want to kind of explore that idea of, you know, are we still on the same page with this? What are our feelings? And and I think what a lot of particularly women go through of like, if you have a career that's very demanding, the idea of like, well, we don't have forever, you know. Um, so, yeah, I really wanted to kind of dig into that and see how I could explore that within within the horror genre from uh, from what was originally there. All of the great stuff about the relationships outside of that was already in the script. Like with the, I don't even know if I want to go into it, but the major marital troubles were already there. Uh, and that also was like really piqued my interest because I feel like this didn't feel like cookie cutter couples like I would normally see in a horror movie that we can just say like, ah, oh, this is this widget. You know, that fits that thematic role fine uh they felt very messy uh and even within the relationships like they have each other's backs and then they fight and then they don't and and i found that much more interesting also coming from a theater background that it's this like fantastic like almost chamber piece of the meltdown of these two uh relationships and these these friendships 
throughout the course of this weekend, and also a horror movie. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of another horror movie that I really love, one of my favorite horror movies, in fact, The Descent, in the sense that in both of those movies, they're great movies even if you never get to the horror. Like in The Descent, I was into it, you know, I was just into those friendships and that those relationships before the monsters ever came in. And same thing here, I feel like it's just kind of an interesting, almost like, American version of like an Ingmar Bergman movie or something, these two couples <laughs> like in this isolated place and their problems. But as far as horror movies go, did you have any other like evil children movies on your mind as reference points or influences? And what what kinds of things did you kind of want to draw on from those movies? And where did you want to maybe depart from what other people had done? Well, first, thank you. That's very high praise. The Descent is one of my favorite horror movies. I think also for a lot of the same reasons. The relationships between those women is great. And I could just watch a movie about them trying to go in a cave for like two hours. And even in the making of this movie, myself and the actors, we would often talk about that. Like before we even get to the horror elements, like we want to make this whole other movie that's just like a second secret movie that's just their really shitty weekend together (laughs) and everything blowing up and like how... I think that's really kind of what drew all of us to it. Um, When it comes to evil kid movies, the ones that I like, I mean, I feel like I grew up on, you know, Stephen King. So there's Pet Sematary, as much as you call that evil kid. You know, Children of the Corn, In the Mouth of Madness is always a huge influence for me for everything. And I always wanted to know the horror movie within that horror movie when they go to Hobbs End. And there's these evil kids running around and like they're slowly deteriorating and it's very the children or, you know, who can kill a child where you're just like, I don't know what happened, but it's happening and I'm witnessing it. Um, I I want that whole other movie to be made so I can so I can watch that movie. But uh, The Good Son also comes to mind because it also has that really heavy like psychological element. And then also Orphan, I was a huge fan of. I think it's very underrated, and especially Orphan 2. I mean, obviously, it was coming out around the same time as we were making this, but I I think it's such a great, fun, kind of over-the-top, almost evil kid movie. And that's a bit more of, like, the fun kind of stuff that I like to do is throw throw that element into it so it's not just all serious and... Yeah, no, the Orphan sequel is, I think that's like one of the most underrated movies in the last 10 years. That movie is incredible. It's, it's great. so good. And In the Mouth of Madness is like one of my top 10 favorite horror movies of all time. So I'm glad you're, we're definitely on the same page here. <laughs> um, well, I'm curious, you know, talking about the kids, in terms of the performances, I'm curious how you communicate with the child actors. Like, you know, do they require different kinds of conversations or direction than the adults? Or would I be surprised to hear that it's fairly similar? Uh, you know, how much, they, how much do they need to be protected from in terms of the violent content of the movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I think much like me as a kid, I was always fascinated by, I I mean, I grew up on like Tales from the Crypt and watching like the most violent horror movies. And that stuff never really scared me or affected me as much as like reading horror did because then I was left to my own imagination. I think them seeing how the sausage is made in a way uh, takes away from any sense of like, what the fear factor or something like that might be like they were so excited the days that they got like covered in blood and got to run around um which i think i also got to share my enthusiasm for that with them and so like when you know the there's a point where there's a lot of blood that's around the set and so like we all toss blood everywhere and you know it's kind of uh taking the sting out of anything that might feel like a realistic thing i think um also i think since this type of movie was more of like a supernatural or like an it's not like okay now you're in a car crash and your mother's dead, you know like 
there's nothing that's really heavy could possibly happen. And I, and I think it makes it more in the land of make-believe in a way. Um, but when it comes to talking to child actors, like I, I feel like I'm maybe in the, <laughs> there's always the like, don't work with kids, don't work with animals, stay away from water, you know, shooting outside, all the things that you're not supposed to like are the things that like I love about making movies and, and my favorite parts of it. So I guess I went wrong somewhere there, but, um, yeah, you, you talk to them the same way that you would the adult actors. Uh, I was also very lucky that um, Zach and Alicia both had a lot of experience working with kids. Zach has two kids, but he also was like a camp counselor when he was younger. Alicia had a young co-star on Raising Dion. So they were both also familiar with like how working on, on set with kids works and from the minute they're there, it's like everything is focused on them. Absolutely everything. Because you only have them for such a small window. Uh, and you have to block things so that it's very specific so they can go away when they're not on camera. And it becomes very much like Tetris, uh, a very big puzzle of how to shoot each scene that they're in, especially in a script that's like 94 scenes and they're in 89 of them. And they can't shoot after 8 p.m. So <laughs> that becomes the bigger challenge than actual direction for them because they were so great at just picking up everything, like almost to like a preternatural degree that's like alarming. I think, you know, they're I, I think children are very good at reading faces and emotions. Um, so I think they can get a lot from your nonverbal language about what it is that you're asking for, or what what is happening in a scene. Um, they're still very attuned to like the now, you know? So you mentioned the limited hours that you get with them. I mean, how did that change the way you work, say with your cinematographer, just in terms of planning your shots and things? I mean, did you have to be a little bit more specific or, you know, did, what, did there have to be more work done on the front end to make sure that you were getting the most out of those hours that you had with the kids? Well, I feel like the way I work is kind of advantageous to this because, I over prep and over plan and over shot list and over block everything ahead of time, trying to think of every possible contingency because I have like an extreme fear of failure. So I, I try to plan for every possible avenue. And then it's like, here's my rule book of like 20 different scenarios. Like, oh, if the actor wants to do this instead, here's our plan then, you know. Um, so I actually do a lot of mental prep, I think, before the before the day. I envy my filmmaker friends who just kind of show up and are like, uh, here we go. I'm looking at. I'm looking. I'm gonna feel this room out, and then like figure it out on this on the set. I would die. I would have a heart attack. I would be filled with so much anxiety. And that's like I've had those nightmares where I where I'm on set and I don't know what scene we're shooting. And it's funny. I've talked to other filmmakers about this, and it's like a kind of a recurring nightmare for many of us. Of like the it's the equivalent of like the showing up you know, and having to give the book report in front of your class for a book you haven't read with like no clothes on or something. So I think the big difference was just figuring out honestly the angles. And I feel like in the last couple of years, you know, we're very lucky with the digital tools that we have now. Um, there's different programs you can use on your phone that simulate the lenses and lens packages that you're using so that you can go to locations if you're that lucky in advance and kind of plan out all those angles to even see like, what am I going to see on this? If I want to, this is the size I want to use. This is what the feel I want to get. Will I see the kid in that shot? <laughs> you know, and then you just figure out here's all my kid and non-kid shots. And of course, you know, sometimes that all falls to shit and you have to start from scratch on set, but at least you have all of that planning in the back of your head to know like you've already worked out the things that won't work. 
at all. So it, I think it saves time in the long run. All to say it's like, is a lot of mental work, I think. Well, thinking about planning those shots and thinking about your lenses and things like that, I mean, what were the kind of guiding principles for you visually for this movie? I mean, what, I don't want to say what's the trick, but what, what do you find are some of the ways that you approach visual style to get the kind of, to make a movie scary, you know, to, to get the, the eerie effects you want? That's so, that's a very good question. It's also a very, it's a very hard question to answer um, because I think it depends on the kind of horror scene that it is. I think you could make any scene a horror scene depending on how you shoot it uh, and how you light it. I don't know. Uh, I think for me, for this one in particular, it was a lot of movement because I wanted to have that sense of like, insecurity almost that nothing felt like solid nothing felt settled uh so there's a lot of camera movement particularly i look at like whose point of view we're in for each scene especially with a movie like this where it kind of switches protagonists and point of views between margaret and ben and how they're viewing him and how he's viewing the kids and how the kids looked at everybody else was a very there was a lot of like triangulating going on there so depending on whose viewpoint it is, I shoot the scene from that. And I was just watching the Suspiria remake a couple nights ago, and I envy his ability, uh, Luca's ability to be able to shoot almost objectively so that the viewer becomes the one experiencing something versus you feeling like you're in the head of a specific character and experiencing something just from their specific point of view. It's not a way I would be able to shoot at all. And I'm I'm fascinated by it because it's just such a different different visual way of shooting, and I I think it's beautiful, but it's it's something I wouldn't be able to do, and I think that's because I do come from more of a writing and theater background that I'm always thinking in things of how you're seeing it as the character, and it's the only way I know how to shoot something. So my none of my movies will ever be able to look like that, you know. It's it's like looking at a completely different kind of art, in a way. So. I think even the way different filmmakers shoot horror, there's no like set of rules of like this does this does this. It just depends on what part of your brain you're using or where it's coming from for you personally. If it's from character or if it's from how you want an audience to feel or an overall like visual idea. It's it's all just, I think, such an individual thing. Well, and it's interesting bringing a point of view with this movie. His point of view in this movie is so interesting because there is this way in which it kind of shifts halfway through. And, you know, you kind of, at least for me, you know, my identification figure became somebody different than who I thought it was going to be going in. And I don't want to, you know, have any spoilers or anything, but I'm just curious how that makes your job tricky, both in terms of the way you shoot it and in the editing. It makes it very tricky. <laughs> it makes it very tricky. And it's kind of, it, it's tough too because Zach is such a, I mean, he's such an expressive and relatable person that with the first, you know, with the majority of the movie being from his POV and you just really feel everything he's feeling to then when it switches, it's like I had to plant seeds before then of being outside of his perspective so that it wouldn't feel completely abrupt and it would feel like a little more naturalistic, but he's so expressive and so I think relatable that it's hard to to let him go as a character almost and step into somebody else's point of view and see it from like the other side almost so that was really really the tricky part 
I think, was trying to find the place for those handoffs that wouldn't feel like you're almost betraying your audience. And I think the easiest way to do that was just getting <laughs> getting rid of him for a while. And it's like, well, you can't be in his point of view if he's not on the camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and and how delicate is the editing process in a movie like this, where you have to very precisely calibrate how far ahead or behind the characters, the audience is. Like, does that you know it? it how much does that? I, I guess obviously some of that's in the script, but how much in the editing room do you find yourself playing with like how much you want to let the audience get ahead or behind of what's going on? It's interesting. That's all such a like kind of feeling, I think, you know, of really feeling it out. And it's one of those things of like you have to watch it the wrong way to be able to see that like, oh, here's what's missing or here's it just feels wrong until it feels right in editing is the easiest way for me to put it. Um, but yeah, there was definitely it was all of that editing is done originally, like way back at script stage. And then when the, you're starting to plan to shoot it, because it's that same thing of figuring out like whose POV do I need to see here? Do I need to see that piece of her here so that we're seeing what she sees and seeing it differently along the way? So it, it's very planned out and very much goes back to like the shot listing I think. And and from there, really talking to the DP and spending a lot of time with your cinematographer to figure out those moments. Uh, and then finding out through the editing of where that starts to feel naturalistic. One of the big ones for me, I think, was um, the point when Ben comes back in the morning. The way that's originally written is all kind of from his point of view. And I knew from there, that's where I needed to see that like, We've got this almost Rashomon style, like one side, the other side. Uh, that scene in particular was something I needed to figure out. How do I shoot this from both of their points of view and make it make sense? And that one was really tricky, was really tricky to figure out. Um, and I tried to do it visually with the shot that goes around Margaret, but then lands back on Ben so then we can go back to them. So we can kind of hand off between the two of them. And then that starts us getting more and more of Margot scene that she's in that it's always seeing just a little bit more of her perspective just a little bit more until it becomes all her so it's tough is mm. the answer <laughs> <laughs> well and in terms of figuring out how it's working for an audience i mean on a movie like this do you do test screenings or do you have friends who come in and look at it or you know how do you kind of get a sense once you've been living with it for so long how who do you rely on to kind of get other eyes on it test screenings i wish oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the few people who would say that since it's this is kind of an odd one because it's it's like a TV movie hybrid. So a lot of the post schedule is more like a TV post schedule, which means it's much more crunched, um, like almost like video game crunch time that you hear about. It's very similar. So you're cramming a lot more post production in a much shorter time period than you normally would in like a film that was done for a feature side, I guess, or meant for like theatrical versus um under like a TV banner, I guess. So what I normally would do and have done on my movies in the past is many test screenings with friends. It's kind of like the friends and family. You know, you kind of have your trusted circle of other weirdo filmmakers that you've worked with over the years. The same as like, I'm sure, you know, as a writer, you show things to other writers ahead of time uh, and give feedback on each other's stuff. Uh, it's, it's much the same. And... I think there's a, a definite benefit to that because other filmmakers are also, I feel like are a great 
audience for seeing something first that know like if something's missing, it's usually probably because you didn't get that. So what do you do with what you have here? You know, versus like then getting notes that are like, oh, it'd be great if you had this. And it'd be like, wouldn't it though? Yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, so I feel like there's a there's a better chance they're going to give you uh, feedback and give you kind of um, specific edit notes that are doable uh, and helpful, I think, because they've had to go through that same process of working with what they have. And then also... Um, I work on a lot of TV shows that have these kind of 20 something, you know, they're like teen murder mystery TV shows. And I like to show the stuff I'm working on to the cast usually just to get the kind of like, what do the youngins think angle of something. And I always find it interesting of like who they relate to or who they don't and, and for what reasons. And I find that that can be helpful as well. Um, I'm a big, big fan of testing. Well, since you mentioned your TV work and, you know, shows like Riverdale and Pretty Little Liars and stuff like that that you've worked on, I'm curious how that kind of work is, you know, in some ways it's so different. I mean, how does that inform the work you do when you do your feature directing or does it? Are they two totally different? At the time, they're two different things. It's like having two different careers that just happened overlap, I think, because in one you're the architect and the other you're the contractor, I guess. Um, but it's also, you're trying on different personalities in a way, because you have to get into the mind of the people who shoot this show, the characters that already exist, the showrunner who, you know, usually I ask them like, what's your favorite kind of get in there. What's your favorite episode? What's your least favorite episode? Or if you feel bad saying that, then like, what's your least favorite scenes or what do you wish had been accomplished better in some way? What, what is the episode that you feel like is the quintessential episode of your show? Uh, and then also talking to the cinematographers like about the same thing. Like, did anything change between this season and that season? Like, is there any new visual things that you're trying to do? Because each show usually has a style and like a loose set of rules of what their visual style is. So you're really just kind of putting on somebody else's clothes for <laughs> a couple of weeks and then stealing mercilessly from that uh, for your own stuff. I mean, I think it does, and I'd say that jokingly, but it does, I think, inform when you do your own things. Like, ah, I remember doing something like this on the show. Not necessarily what I would have done if it was in my style, but now I can use something from that in something I'm doing. Or it might be something I wouldn't have thought of. I mean, even the last show I did, I shot like skinny dipping in the middle of the ocean, you know, kids running down to the beach and skinny dipping the ocean and all this stuff. And then they're out in the beach with the fire, that whole thing. Uh it's not anything I would have written for any of my movies. So it's something I never would have shot, but now I know how to shoot a scene like that, or there's things that I've tried and, and I've dealt with the hardships of shooting something like that. And like now know like the pitfalls or certain things. And you can always just take that knowledge on and use it for like the next thing. I mean, the, the best part of it, I think is being able to do things like that where you're, you're just seeing a little bit, outside of your own perspective as a filmmaker and your own creative perspective. So it just broadens your horizons and, and I think maybe makes you hone more into what it is that your own style is. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder about that with independent filmmakers who work in TV. It seems to me like in a way, maybe it is a way to, you know, for all the downside of it in terms of, like you say, you're more of a contractor than an architect, but 
it does allow you this opportunity to kind of expand your visual grammar because if you're on a show, I mean, I know people have directed on like some of these procedurals that do a lot more handheld than they would ever do. But it's like, well, then you learn how to use handheld and then maybe you find it's a place where that handheld works when you're doing one of your own things. And, you know, I find that very fascinating. But I mean, what do you, what do you think of as sort of the great, I mean, I guess you kind of answered this, but I'm just curious, you know, in terms of the pleasures of episodic directing versus independent filmmaking. I mean, on the one hand, it's not your baby the same way, but on the other hand, is there something liberating about that? Yes and no. And, and I think it might be different for me too, because I came originally from an art department background. I worked in art department and TV for a while. And then outside of that, like producing. So making someone else's creative vision was not something I didn't have an experience with. So I think I already had some of that tool set already of it not being like, oh, no, but you're just doing it wrong. Like it shouldn't look like that visually just because as a director, there's like a very strong sense of when it's like, oh, the painting is crooked. I have to fix it uh, that I can almost set aside and just be excited about the creation of someone else's thing. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of about if it's, you know, if it's if there's a sort of liberating aspect to working in television where it's not all on you, where you're not the, you know. Yeah, I suppose I suppose so. Um I definitely do not envy showrunners their trying to balance their vision against like both studio and network. Um because it I from what I've seen, it can sometimes have conflicting things that both are trying to accomplish and it seems like there's a lot more potential for people not to be building the same car or to have an idea of like when we're making a van I thought we were making an RV um there's a lot less of that I think at least in my very lucky experience of either making stuff so independently or even just working with one studio who is also you know, they're they're the only ones that I'm dealing with. So we all are kind of on the same page uh, from the get go. And I imagine when you're telling a continuing story like television, that could probably get very tricky about like, well, we have endless amount of content that we're making here. We want the story to go that way. We like it this way versus like when you have a script, it's like beginning, middle, end. We all know what the final package looks like before we get started uh, versus like the potential, I think really trips a lot of people up creatively in the long run, like all the potential branches something could take. And I do not envy showrunners having to like ride that wave and steer that ship when it can go in so many potential directions. Well, and I'm kind of curious, this is getting away a little bit from filmmaking craft, but I'm very curious about this whole world of non-theatrical Blumhouse horror that, you know, that this movie is in. And I'm curious for you as someone who has both produced and directed horror movies for a while now, uh, how do you see the genre's role in the business and, and what are the benefits and the challenges for you as a director of making movies in this kind of VOD streaming model? Or does it even or does it even make a difference? Do you even think about it? It only makes a difference to me, I think, in terms of the production model itself, because I think theatrical is treated more like film, and these are literally within a TV deal. And TV is made on very short schedules, um, and part of what makes that possible is that they do have recurring, <laughs> recurring sets. Uh, you know. Uh, department heads that are like looking ahead like three episodes of the the next things that are coming up 
um, someone who's kind of steering that ship through the whole course. Whereas using a TV production model for individual stories, I find to be very challenging um, because it's trying to fit, I feel like, a round peg into a square hole. Like they're just not the same thing. Um, they're close to, but not the same thing. So it's, it's much, it's much more challenging in, in my experience, um, just from production, production side. I found that on, you know, um, anthology TV shows I've done as well. Cause even if you're sharing like the same, there's a production office that's shared and, uh, the big thing that makes TV work on that tight schedule is having that continuity of like, well, we know at least three quarters of this episode is going to be in the bullpen and then her apartment and whatever and these things exist uh whereas you're still starting from scratch every single time you're making a new story that has new characters new actors you know whole new different style with new director and new sets and new locations like it's it's tough it's really tough um i think it would be much easier to make a feature yeah <laughs> Is there any, uh, you know, to, just to put a positive spin on it, you know, is there any benefit to when you're on these extremely tight schedules? I mean, do you think that that in some ways forces you to operate on instinct in a way that maybe is good for the movie sometimes? I think that's true it? all the time. It's funny because, I, you know, I have friends who are making $200 million movies now um, in the genre space, uh, genre adjacent space, and they say it's the same thing. You know, at the end of the day, it's still like we've got this boatload of money, but we still need at least one more boatload to get the thing that we needed. Or we're still cutting out 50 VFX shots at the end of this week. Uh, so I think it's film by its nature is something that you're always going to want more time and you're always going to need more things than the budget uh, might necessarily allow. Um, I think it would be great. <laughs> I've never really experienced yet the, uh, having the time to do the creative and stylistic things that I want to do. And I know that for a lot of, not to make it this thing, but for a lot of directors who look like me or, or, you know, uh, gender wise, um, have the same expression that it, we would all love to be given the actual time to do. Like, if this is what we can do with what we've been given, imagine what we can do with more. Cool. Well, I thought it was a really great movie, and it's a, you know, it's a real gift to horror fans, so I appreciate you coming and talking with me about it. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>